It says this in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, just to recap, Ephesians chapter 1 talks about God's greatness, God's glorious plan, that before He created the heavens and the earth, He loved us, He called us, He chose us, um, and, that, and that God's bringing all the, everything together under Christ. Uh, he's the ruler over all things. And then, and then Ephesians 1 finishes with this amazing statement about the church, that the, the church is Christ's body, uh, and, the, and he, Christ fills the church, and then the church fills everything everywhere with God's presence. It's like a massive statement about the role of who we are as believers. We're, we're supposed to fill everything everywhere with God's presence. If you want something more poetic, uh, Paul says that everywhere we go, we spread the fragrance of God's good news. How uh, That's quite poetic, isn't it? Uh, and that's part of what we're doing. And then, so that's the big, this big glorious plan of God in Ephesians 1. And then Ephesians chapter 2 nails down into you, into you as a person, into us as a group of people. And it says this in verse 1, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. I've underlined many. Ah, uh, your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil who is the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, by the nature of our birth, because of our humanity, we were subject to God's anger just like everybody else. That's three powerful verses of Scripture right there. Do you know, one of the biggest challenges uh, in understanding the grace of God, the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, is one of the biggest roadblocks to what God wants to do in your world. Oh, I don't don't know, maybe I'll I'll go further. The single biggest thing that's hindering God working in your world right now is the fact that you don't think you need Him. It's the fact that actually, actually, I'm doing okay And, oh, yes, if Jesus helped, then it would be better. But the reality is these three verses make it really quite plainly clear. And I think it's important for us to remember all the time, without God reaching out to us, without the grace of God extended to us, we were dead in our sins in our many trespasses. Uh, Amen? Yeah? And we don't have time to all talk about our sins, right? That's why in in church we mainly talk about what God's done because it's awesome, right? And then uh, and we'll leave some of the rest of it for private conversations or prayers to God. But the reality is that's where we find ourselves often, right? Trapped in our sin, dead in our sins. Uh, but verse four is where the story changes. It says this, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so very much that even though we were dead because of our sin, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Everyone, it's worth underlining that. Because we are united with Christ Jesus. Because we are united with Christ Jesus. Because of our relationship with Jesus. A whole lot of things happen. We, we, we find grace, we find forgiveness of us, and we find a position in life that has authority and that has power because of our relationship with Jesus. And verse 7 says this, So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and His kindness towards us, as shown in all that He has done for all of us who are united with Christ. Underline that, who are united with Christ. 
verse 8 to 10 is awesome. It says this, God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He, and we, sorry, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned for us from long ago. Do you know, throughout Ephesians, the, the book of Ephesians, and actually right through Scripture, the Bible presents things that are a challenge to our thinking, Right? The, the, the first one that comes to mind is this one that says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And the earth was formless and void, and God said, let there be light. It's like this, this, this statement about who God is, it, it's so different to like, in the beginning, God worked really hard, and God thought really hard, and God slowly made light happen. It doesn't say that. It says that just God said, let there be light. So it's a statement about God that really conflicts with our thinking. Because everything in our thinking says, well, you know, this is how, everything in our thinking is based on how people work and how humanity works and how our experience works. Everything in our thinking is based on what it was like in our family. That's why sometimes you, you, you talk to someone and they seem completely crazy. Or they seem way too confident. Or they seem way too unconfident, right? And it's because their whole reality is not based on what's really real. Their reality, their view of the world is based on their experience, based on their understandings, based on their own hurts, based on their own pain, based on their own failures, or or else it might be based on some of their own breakthroughs or some of their own strengths. But what we've got to do is get past our our strengths, we've got to get past our weaknesses, we've got to get past our hurts, and we've got to get past our victories, and we've got to allow Scripture, we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to shape our thinking around the realities of God. The realities of how the world works, right? Some of the things you worry about are all in your closed system. Just in Jordan world, it's a problem. But if I bring Jordan world and connect it with God's real world, suddenly the thing that I've been obsessing about is actually not a problem anymore. Sometimes it's the other way around, though. Some of the things that I think are great about Jordan world... When I bring Jordan world and I connect it with the actual realities of God, I realize that, hey, that thing that I thought was great is actually not right. It's not how it works. Uh, you know, I don't know how many times I've had deep and philosophical conversations where people say things, well, I, like, uh, they say something like this, well, I reckon, do you know what? What you reckon is not actually that important. Do you know? What you reckon, what Plato reckoned, what Aristotle reckoned, what science might teach us is not as real as what the realities of Scripture are. And like we read right here, that God loved us so very much that He gave His Son, that grace is extended to us, right? That God's lifted us and seated us in heavenly places. But I reckon, well, I don't know what what you reckon, but the reality is, whatever you reckon about yourself, you need to start reckoning yourself righteous. You need to start thinking of yourself positioned in God's good graces. You need to think of yourself filled with this Holy Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead and is alive in us. 
Because that's the reality of who we are. And you know what? We need to learn to live like that. We need to learn to live like sons and daughters of God, which requires us to retrain our thinking. Do you know, um, one of the things I think is really true is this. For all of us as Christians, we know that there's, God has a moral standard, right? Just give me a show of hands. You know that God has a moral standard. Okay, let's just do a little pop quiz. I'll point at you, and you tell me one of the things that's wrong, right? So tell me you go first. Tell me a wrong thing in God's moral standards. Yes, yeah, brilliant. Killing, no, it's not brilliant. Killing someone's not brilliant, but that's true. Tell us, thou shalt not kill, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, son of our, another wrong thing. Tell me another wrong thing. He's already done killing. Did you? Stealing, stealing. Yeah, yeah. Stealing's also wrong, right? Thou shalt not steal. Uh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good, very good. Uh, uh, Sunita, Sunita, a wrong thing. Tell me a wrong thing. Doesn't have to be something personal, but just tell me a wrong thing. Lying, thou shalt not lie. That's very good, very good. Uh, Duncan, a wrong thing. Drugs are wrong. Well, that's you know, sort of true apart from like uh, asthma medications, hard blood pressure. Uh, these are things that I'm uh, using, uh, uh, prepared to admit my drug use. Uh, and, uh, but I think probably use, the use of heart pressure, hard blood pressure medication is better than having a stroke. Uh, but but uh, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Do you know when I was growing up, I used to think, I used to think uh, we grew up in a church where um, all drinking was sort of banned. Like, it wasn't just like you shouldn't drink alcohol. Or, look, we, our church, if you want to know our policy or what we believe about alcohol, is that for, if you're getting drunk and alcohol is controlling your life, you've got a problem and you need to get sorted that out, right? You need to get that sorted out. And you can't lead in church if you have a drinking problem in our church, right? Because you're not free in your world, right? Cool? That's what we believe about drinking. But our church, like, drinking was banned, right? So if someone saw you with a drink, you'd get kicked out of church and then no one would talk to you. Right, so it was a whole, it was next level, it was next level moralistic uh, religion. It was awesome, but um, it wasn't. It was evil, anyhow. So we knew that drinking bad. Another thing that was bad was smoking, right? So drinking and smoking was bad, and smoking's bad. But it's not smoking's not directly morally bad, right? So smoking's not like killing, which is directly bad. But smoking is so unhealthy for the person smoking. It's so, so dangerous, and we know that now better than we used to do, you know. Like Spurgeon, who's one of the great preachers of all time, right? Great Baptist preacher from London. At 21 years old, he would command crowds. Of, he, when he preached, there'd be 10,000 people there when he was 21, right? He's awesome. Now, when you read Spurgeon now, here's a little tip. When you read Spurgeon now, you think, man, what were people going there for? Because this is why. When they printed his sermons into books, paper was really expensive. And because they were English, they cut out all the unnecessary things. So they took out all of his illustrations and all of his jokes. See, I would have done it quite the other way around and just left in the illustrations and the jokes, right? But Spurgeon said this about smoking. He said, when I smoke, I smoke to the glory of God. <laughs> but that's because he didn't understand the science, right? Now he would say, I don't smoke because it doesn't glorify God because it's not, I'm not looking after the body that God gave me, right? When I was growing up, the funny thing in my head was I knew that, that drinking was bad. I knew that smoking was bad. But then I always thought of it as one, was one thing, smoking and drinking, because that's what I used to get preached about, people out there smoking and drinking. And I used to think that drinking was bad and smoking was bad, but you were really going to be in trouble with God if you were smoking and drinking at the same time. You know, 
We've got this, we know this moral standards of God, right? We know these moral standards, and somewhere inside of us, the Holy Spirit enlivens our conscience about the things in our life that are wrong, or we make mistakes, and we feel shame, or we feel distance from God. And so we think, I need to change my habits and change my behaviors, right? Just give me a wave if you, you know the dynamic I'm talking about. Give me a quick wave. You know, hey, there's things in my life that I know what it feels like to want to change those sorts of things, right? Do you know what I found in life is that when you focus in on your bad habits that you want to change, you tend to empower them. You tend to make those things more powerful and much bigger in your life than they really are, right? Uh, the, the famous old song, we could sing it. Goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Sing along, Tim. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light. Of his glory and grace. See, here's, the reality of the song is this, that our worship needs to focus in on Jesus. We need to turn our eyes on Jesus. I, I like this idea that we need to look full in his wonderful face. Just sometimes I think we approach, you know, when, when, um, when you're talking to, to a, when I was a school teacher and you're talking to a kid who's in trouble, they'd always look around your face. <laughs> But we need, we need to look at Jesus, not around his face. We need to engage in relationship with Jesus, right? And then all the things of the world grow strangely dumb. Another illustration is this. Imagine in your life you've got two dogs, right? There's two dogs that live inside your heart, right? There's two dogs, and they're, they're both big dogs, and they're both powerful dogs. One of those is your spirit, and one of those is your flesh nature. So your spirit is the part of you that wants to connect with God, and your flesh nature is the part of you that just wants to satisfy its cravings right here and right now, right? There's two dogs in your life. You can't kill either dog. That's why it doesn't matter how broken your life is, your spirit will still come alive when you're in an atmosphere of God, right? Because you can't kill the spirit of God inside of you. Do you know what you can't kill? You can't kill your flesh nature either. You have to live with being a human being forever, right? But what you can do is, what you can decide is, which of the two dogs are you going to feed? Are you going to feed your spirit by worship? Are you going to feed your spirit in Scripture? Are you going to feed your spirit in repentance? Are you going to feed your spirit in, in relationship with other Christians? When you go to e-group and you go to John's house and you have a cup of tea and you talk about the Bible together for a bit and you make a lot of jokes, you're feeding your spirit. When you turn up at church, apart from the worship and apart from the preaching, just being in a room with other Christians, you're feeding your spirit, right? As you feed your spirit and you deny your flesh, right? That's what the Bible teaches us to do. We need to deny our flesh. We need to take up our cross daily. We need to deny ourselves, right? When you stop feeding your flesh nature, your human nature, and you keep feeding your spirit, what's going to happen in your world is that your life is going to be transformed. The drivers, the internal drivers of your life change, and some of those moralistic laws, they will all take care of themselves, right? Because you're going to be other-focused, you're going to be God-focused, 
your, you know, your temptation to kill people, steal from them, commit adultery, all those things actually just grow strangely dim as opposed to something you have to attack and kill in your life. Amen? The problem with that is it's going to take time, isn't it? Wouldn't it be so much better if you could just shoot the dog? No, I'm not talking about an actual dog, obviously. We would never shoot an actual dog. But we don't. You don't get to. You, we, the Bible teaches us we have to deny our flesh. We have to engage our spirit of God. We need to live out the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Very, very cool. How many people know that grace is awesome? The grace of God, this free gift of God, this free gift of salvation, this grace of God, this unmerited favor, that even though we don't deserve it, God makes forgiveness available to us. Even though we don't deserve it, God draws us near. How many of you know that's amazing? It's so amazing if you get this morning's service sermon or listen to this morning's sermon on the app and you'll, you'll be even more amazed. You know, grace is something you don't take credit for. That's why we don't judge others. Because when we judge others, we, we, then we're pretending that somehow the life that we live is based upon our own good merits. And the, uh, let me, can I assure you, the life that you have in God, the, the life you have in the Holy Spirit has got nothing to do with your good behavior. Do you know what? It's really good. Your good behavior is good. But it's not what means God's part of your life. So often we think, well, I'm a good person and so God's part of my life, Right? Do you know what? You're all good people and that's brilliant, but that's not the reason God is part of your life. God is part of your life because of His grace that's extended to you. He would still be part of your life if you were not a good person. Even if you were as evil as me, God would still be a part of your life, right? But the reality is God's grace is what makes Him available to us. He's the blessing of grace that's extended to us. And His grace changes us and transforms us. You know, my first car, and you may have heard stories about my first car in the past, it's, it's a car full of history. It's a storied vehicle, right? Um, I was talking to Pastor Willie the other day, and he said to me, I'm so glad I stole your car. He stole the car outside church um, in the 1990s. He stole the car, and he crashed it, or the person driving it crashed it, and they were caught by the police dogs uh, in the bush behind Paraparam. And if you don't, if you're going to get caught by a policeman, it's one thing, get caught by a police dog is a whole lot worse. Uh, and uh, he says he's so glad that he stole the car because um, my mum and dad, they were, they were the owners of the car, and they went to the, the, there was a family group conference because they were young people in the, at the time, and a family group conference, and my mum and dad started praying for Willie Levy every day. After they, after they saw him at the family group conference. He's now the pastor of Equipus Church in Dunedin, right? And he's like, I'm so glad I stole that car. Because uh, God, what? that's grace, isn't it? God works grace, you know. Anyway, I got the car. I bought the car off the insurance company, and it cost $200. How many of you know you don't get much of a car for $200? Actually, let's be fair, it was $210. I don't know. Insurance companies, they come up with crazy numbers, right? $210. What, what did they do with the $210? Like, yay, we, got, we made $210 from selling that car back to Jordan. Anyway, I bought the car for $200, and it was broken because it had been crashed into a tree. Um, and uh, it had some like rust in it as well. And so I went to work, and I restored that car, not to its former glory. I restored it to as good as I could get it, uh, which is not what it was. Um, and it, it had rust along the roof. If you remember 1970s cars, they had these little sills along the side. I'll just talk to the two people in the room, three people, four people in the room who could probably remember a car from the 1970s. They had these roof rails like gutters where, the, where basically rust would grow. I don't know what they were for apart from that, but the roofs would all rust out now they're all sort of smoothed off but they used to have these rails that would i think it was to stop the rain run, running into the car before they had proper rubber anyway it was it was a design flaw that existed for about 20 years in car manufacture but that's not the point let's not get into details anyhow 
So I bogged those up. I bogged those up with um, like a ceramic, you know, bog. If you've ever used it, it's awesome. It's like a ceramic material that you can sort of jam into rust holes in cars, and then it sort of dries really hard, and then you can shape it and sand it flat, and then you can paint it, and then nobody knows that your car's not really metal anymore. I put about eight or nine or maybe about 12 litres of bog into the car in various places. Uh, and um, one thing I couldn't fix, the floor, plan was a bit, floor pan was a bit rusty, and that was due to the fact that the rain had come in. This car was manufactured in Porirua, and uh, the rain had come in through some of the gaps in the car, and um, it rusts out the floor pan. You know, the carpet gets wet, and then I ended up ripping out the carpet because the carpet was wet, and the floor was a bit rusty. And, and that was a bit of excitement too as well because, I mean, as you're driving along, you could see the road whistling by just through the rust holes in the floor, right? Um, a friend of mine had a, uh, uh, he had a, a Ford Anglia. Anybody? Anybody? He had a Ford Anglia. Uh, and he, and he called, his car was called the Rustang. You know, it's a bit of a play on word for Mustang, and he had Rustang painted on the back of it. Uh, this is Power Ram, so you've got to be, bear in mind that we're just simple country folk. And, um, and he had good wheels on his car, but then he, um, he rear-ended some, um, somebody else's car with his Rustang. Funnily enough, he got the, the good wheels were off another friend's Ford Escort because he'd rear-ended someone and ruined his car. So Pete's orange Ford Escort, got, he rear-ended someone, so the wheels got taken off that, and they got put on the Rustang. And then the Rustang rear-ended someone. It's something to do with the brakes on these Ford vehicles uh, and uh, so then the wheels I got the, I got to inherit the wheels and so I got the wheels and tires and so they really had really wide tires and then I replaced the guard got a new headlight headlights were $20 so I got a new headlight and I, it was looking good I had a new guard and then I got it all painted the same colour which it had never been for since we'd owned it and it was, so it was all blue um, the rust holes in the floor I just put I taped them put the tape on there to stop the wheels it was just mainly because it was cold uh, having the wind whistling through there, and then had the fat tires on there from three other people, you know, third generation broken cars had the tires on it, right? Excellent. Do you know, sometimes we think that the work of God in our life is like what I did to that car. That God looks at the rust holes in Alistair and sort of just bungs it up with bog. That, that God looks at the, at the holes in the floor of your life and just puts tape over it. No one will know. Uh, sometimes we think we come to church and we just get painted the same color. Yeah, at least I'm all blue. No one needs to know what's underneath. <laughs> but the reality is God doesn't do that. God recreates us. He recreates us. When the Bible talks about, when theologians or scholars, when they talk about God's creative power, they talk about His, His, His creation ex nihilo is the Latin. Everyone say ex nihilo. Ex nihilo, which means from nothing. God creates from nothing. Now, you've never done that. You've never, ever done that. So that's why you can't understand it. You've never created from nothing. As a fashion designer, Aaron's never designed something. Like, you can't design, I'm going to design a jumper. Well, you've already started with an idea, right? Jumper. I'm going to, everything we create, we take something and we reshape it. Uh, we, we take a, a material and we make it into something better or something awesome. But God just creates from nothing. God takes your broken life, and you know what He takes, does with your broken life? He throws it away. That was me kicking it away. He doesn't need it. He creates a brand new you. 
He recreates you the way he would always have wanted you to be. He doesn't just, he doesn't just shape up. He doesn't just buff the edges. He just doesn't wipe the marmite off your face and then you'll be okay. No, he recreates you in Christ Jesus. That's the work of grace. Jesus talked about this, that unless we are born again, we'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Unless we're born again, unless we become like a child, recreated brand new, then we can't see the kingdom. The reality is that's the work of grace in your world. Just close your eyes. Just think about what is it about your life that you hate? What what is it about your life that you're trying to change? You're trying to change. You're trying to change. Just in your mind right now, focus in on it. Focus in on that thing. What's that thing that grips your heart? Someone for someone here, it's anxiety. It grips your heart. You just and you get anxious about how anxious you are. You worry about your worrying. And it actually has grabbed you. And you're trying to change it. I'm, going, I'm trying to be less of a Why don't you allow the Holy Spirit right now in to recreate you there? Recreate you. Some of you, some of you here have got a past sexually. You've got a history sexually, and you think, man, I'm unclean and I'm unworthy because I've mismanaged the sexuality that God gave me. Come on, you can you could keep obsessing or you could keep worrying about those things, you could keep holding on to those memories. But right now, I believe the Holy Spirit is moving amongst the rows, recreating innocence, recreating holiness, recreating purity in our hearts and our minds and our lives. Come on, it's a re it's a work of recreation. Why don't you stand to your feet? I'm sort of a mid-sermon, but I really feel we need to pray. I really feel we need to pray. That's right. That's right. Just close your eyes and just close your eyes. I want people to respond. If right now there's some area of your life that sprung to mind where that that you that that it's like, oh man, I I, I get this idea. There's almost like a a emotionally, it's like a cancer. This thing, this thing that grows in your life. Maybe that no, maybe even no one else even knows what it is. Just as everyone's got their heads bowed, everyone's got their eyes closed. That's why Wakash is not playing, because I just want you to be ab- feel absolutely private. If you know, if you know there's something that's, that's grabbed your life in it, and actually you've actually spent some time working on it, but you've got nowhere, why don't you just lift your hands? I really wanted to release the Holy Spirit into that space in your world. I just want to release the Holy Spirit. Right now, Holy Spirit, right across this room. Just if you're embarrassed about lifting your hand, you need to know that more than half the people are lifting their hands right now. Because it's a because when this isn't a collection of people who are here to pretend to be holy. This isn't a bunch of perfect people. This is this is a church full of people who are passionate about allowing God into their world. Right now, Holy Spirit. The, I really believe the Holy Spirit's moving around. And he's actually touching people. Right now, Holy Spirit. Just we just release your anointing. We just release your anointing. We release your anointing. Even as you lift your hands, that's an action of faith. It's an action of faith that activates heaven. It activates heaven on your behalf. This is what I want you to do. Right now, the pose that you're standing in, you've got your hands lifted high, you've got your hands lifted low. The next time this issue grabs your heart, I want you to find this physical position. There's someone here with, their one, with one hand lifted. Maybe you've got two hands lifted. Find yourself a private space. Go to the bathroom. Stand there. Lift your hands and just say, God, I'm remembering the moment where you created this, recreated this area of my life. You, when you're under pressure, under the pressure of temptation, come on, lift up your hands. Lift up your holy hands and say, God, I'm lifting up these holy hands and I'm remembering again your recreative work on Sunday night when your scripture was read when it was declared to me the good news of salvation that Jesus Christ recreates me come on recapture the moment in Jesus name awesome let's give God a shout of praise and grab a seat give God a shout of praise grab a seat I really believe this series God wants to do some real stuff 
And you know, as the pastor of the church, I want to say again, if, there's, if you're working through stuff, we'll preach into stuff on Sunday, but sometimes it needs a conversation during the week where you can sit down and talk with a Dougal, talk with Alistair, talk with Jono, talk with Chrissy, or with Rachel, or with, um, uh, with Emma, talk with someone, who, and that's, that's six people to choose from based on what's your style of conversation. And sometimes just talking it out is where God works in that relationship, in that conversation to work in that space. Amen? So we're recreated in Christ Jesus. Do you know what this Ephesians passage says, says as well? Look, we are His masterpiece. In the scripture the other way, we're, we're His masterpiece and we're recreated, but I did it around the other way. There could be a good reason, but there's not. I just put, got my notes mixed up. Do you know what? I'm out of my depth when I talk about art. I still talk about it. I'm like, wow, cool painting, right? <laughs> But I'm out of my depth when I talk about it, and I did manage to get 39% in, um, in my year 12 arts. And it uh, wasn't my highest score. In fact, it was my lowest. Um, so, but I do know, one thing I do know is I know what a masterpiece is. When the Bible says that we are His masterpiece, when we, 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 the church is His masterpiece, we are recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, right? We are his masterpiece. I know what a masterpiece is. You know, across the career of an artist, if someone's going, if someone gets the opportunity to be an artist and to paint full time, which is not that many, even of some of the world's most famous artists, not many of them got the opportunity to paint full time, right? But if they did get the opportunity to paint full time, they would make thousands and thousands of artworks. Like thousands of artworks. And some of them might take a long time, but they've got this, they have this momentum in their work where they can create thousands and thousands of artworks, right? So someone like a Colin McCann painted and painted and painted and painted. Thousands and thousands of artworks. But actually only dozens, out of the thousands, only dozens of them are masterpieces. Even someone like Van Gogh, whose career is quite short, he painted a lot of artworks, but there's only, a, there's only all, of them are, all of them are valuable now, but only some of them are masterpieces. Even this, like if they wrote a sketch on a napkin, it's valuable, right? But it's not their masterpiece. When, when the Bible says we are Christ, when God's masterpiece, when we talk about the idea of a masterpiece, there's a few characteristics about that piece of artwork that makes it a masterpiece, right? Number one, a masterpiece is a unique piece of work, right? So it's something that the artist has done that's like, like, a, like it's a unique expression of themselves, Right? Lots of artists do like cafe art. They just crank them out. Here's a painting, here's a painting. None of those are masterpieces. But when an artist is creative and they're really putting themselves into their work, when they do something that's unique or new or it's fresh, it becomes a masterpiece. Do you know what I mean? I'm thinking about Weezer's Blue Album. It's a masterpiece, right? Because it's unique and special, right? Just listen. Hey, Come on, it's, it's a masterpiece of an album, right? Because out of the morass of punk and pop, this pops up this terrible, terrible album of just magical songs, right? My name's Jonas. Got a box full of your toys. It's just, it's a masterpiece, buddy. Take my word for it. The green one, not so much, right? But they sold a lot of copies of that. Anyhow, it's unique, right? Masterpiece is unique. So that's what you are. Out of the work of God, we are this unique thing. Out of all the other things that God's done, there's this, there's this masterpiece quality, this uniqueness that marks the work of God in you, right? 
you know, for a masterpiece to be, for a piece of artwork to be considered a masterpiece, it must be a piece of art that showcases the power of the artist. There must be something about it when people look at it, they go, wow, that's not just unique and a powerful expression. It also shows a, a skill and a competency and a clarity of expression in the artist, right? It's not confusing. There's something, there's something powerful about the art. It needs to be technically brilliant or it needs to have a technical competency to it, right? Otherwise, it's not a masterpiece. It's like, wow, that's a great idea, but it's not a masterpiece. Or that, that's a brilliant expression, but it's not a masterpiece because it's not well executed. Do you know you're a unique expression of God? You're a powerful expression of God. And you're technically brilliant expression of God. It's a technically brilliant. What's, you know what, Pastor Willie Levy and Danita, that's technically brilliant what God's done in his life. So the devil gets works in Willie's life and Pastor William's life and puts him in a position as a 16-year-old with the wrong friends. And God's like, perfect. God can work this plot. Like, that's technically brilliant. You couldn't write. There's no author who's written a novel as clever as your life. Every single novel is nowhere near as complex and brilliant and beautiful as an ordinary human life. Right, because the artist, the writer, God has written a story into your life that's so much more complex, so much more powerful, so much more wonderful. Amen? It must carry a clear message. For an artwork to be considered a masterpiece, it can't just be another painting. It's got to say something. In the style of it, in the work of it, it's got to be something. It's got to say something. It must reveal something about the heart or the nature of the artist. A piece of artwork might be considered a masterpiece because it reveals to us something about who the artist was. And that's you too. It, you reveal something about who God is. A masterpiece moves people. When people see, when, they, when you see Van Gogh's sunflowers, it's like, wow. Well, it's just a painting of sunflowers. How many people know that Van Gogh's sunflowers are, are wow? People, people? Starry, starry night? Can someone give me starry, starry night? That's amazing. What about Colin McCann, the I am? Have you ever seen that in for real? You people. You've got to get out with more. It's been in Wellington. Yeah. It's amazing. It's eight feet. It's eight feet high. It's like 12, 15, 20 feet long in the different panels. And it's just color and I am and dark and green and it's awesome. It's it's a landscape that of no no with no hills. It's a land what it is, it's a landscape painting with no hills. It's just like it's awesome. Right? It moves people. And do you know what? You move people. When the grace of God works in your world. Do you know how, when I told you the story about Pastor Willie, people are like, Wow, yeah. Why? Because it's a masterpiece. But so's your story. What about Putty? He's just got a job. He's just got a job, that, and how he got that job, you should get him to tell your story, because it's just like, wow. There's people with degrees who went up against him in the interview, but they don't have a heavy traffic license, so they didn't get the job, right? But the reality is it's part of the story of God and the Thai family, this redemption story, this grace story, right? A piece of artwork to be considered a masterpiece. It moves for it to be a masterpiece, often, uh, it needs to move the work of, the, it needs to be like a landmark piece of work. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, like Picasso's first cubic works. It's a landmark piece of work because it, it moves the artist's work from one realm to the next. Do you know, or, or um, if Monet's work and the other guys, the French school, it, it didn't just change, it didn't just move their artwork forward. What they did, the Impressionists, what they did is they changed art forever. Do you know, that's the same about you. You, you move the work of God forward. When you allow God to, to work his artwork into your life, into the story of your life, you move the plan of God forward. You, you actually shape, you contribute, you allow God to move in you in a way that changes the world around you. This is what Paul means when he describes the work of grace in your life, in our life collectively. We're this masterpiece. We uniquely display the power, the prowess, the wonder of God in our lives. Oh, but you know, I'm just, oh, I'm just Jordan. Oh, I'm just, I'm just Harris. But I'm just ordinary. John is just another person in Parapram, grew up in Parapram, lived in Wellington, went to Wellington High School. Had those heroes, you know, those, we see their photos, they were his heroes. The guy with the radio control dog. <laughs> how, many, how many people ever have you had moments where you think really, you feel really ordinary, almost invisible? How many people have you ever felt real, like a real, like a, you know, sometimes you make mistakes, but have you ever felt like a real failure? Like, oh, I'm genuinely a failure. Right? You know what the, the Apostle Paul says that that's the whole point? If I, if I had like a plain canvas here with no painting on it at all, right? I could probably sell it for whatever plain, plain piece of canvas is worth. $10, $20, depending on the size. Right? If I had over here a canvas that had been thrown in the dump, that a dog had pooed upon, right? That was torn, maybe it was broken, the, wood, the wooden parts of it are broken, the canvas part of it is dirty. I could not sell that. But God takes this canvas, the ordinary one. Sometimes we want to be, we want to be, oh God, I want to just be like this. I want to be pure. I want to be holy. And we misunderstand holy. Because what we are is the broken canvas. That God then turns into the masterpiece. Because he doesn't want, he want, he could just get a clean canvas, and but he's not that sort of artist. He's the sort of artist who's poking around in the tip, looking for things to make into fine pieces of artwork. He's the sort of fashion designer who's raiding clothing bins, risking scabby attacks, right? Do you know, I would never be able to go, I could never read, I can't even, I've, how many people are terrified of clothing bins? Me and Tim, yeah, three, but yeah. Can you, like, every time I put something in there, I feel like I'm going to get trapped in it somehow. Like, you know, I'm going to get my arm caught. I'm going to somehow, I'm going to fall bodily into it and be stuck in it forever. Anybody else ever had that feeling? 
And it goes, yeah, it's true, eh? And it bangs shut in a terrifying way. Cha-ching! But come on, God takes the scraps of someone's brokenness and some, so He takes this, this, the messed up canvas of our life and the power of God is that He doesn't clean the canvas. He just turns the whole thing into a masterpiece. And the funny thing is, it's so awesome because you can still, still see the stains. You can still see the bits where they were broken, but somehow that speaks even more powerfully to the power of the artist, the wonder of this God, that He works in our world in such an awesome, awesome way. Here's the whole point. We are God's masterpiece. We're recreated in Christ Jesus. The masterpiece is that He recreates us. The Apostle Paul says that we have this treasure, this this precious Holy Spirit, this gift of grace, with this gospel word. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that people would see that it's about God. I wish I wasn't so ordinary. Well, God loves the fact that you're ordinary. It means that He can do extraordinary things in you. And by doing extraordinary things in you, He can reveal to the world all around us that it's not you who's awesome, but that it's Him who's awesome. We're recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. Everyone say good works. Good works. Think, wow, well, I don't know about doing... Straight away, straight away, you're thinking like the scouts helping old ladies across the road. <laughs> You've missed the point. As soon as you thought, I've got to get my helping the elderly badge. Maybe that's a good movie where the kid's trying to get the helping the elderly badge. <laughs> Russell. He's one of the greatest characters in any movie ever, that kid Russell. Only best, only better character in that movie is the dog. I love you. (laughs) I have just met you, but I love you. (laughs) Squirrel. But come on, the good works of God aren't, I'm going to be Russell, I'm going to get a helping the elderly badge. The the good work of God is this, is this, this eternal purpose. My grandfather, who I told you, if you're here this morning, I mentioned that this is, 10 verses of scripture that's, that ha- burned into my heart because I can remember a, a specific conversation with my grandfather. I went around to his house and he'd just been reading his Bible, just done his devotion. And he was ranting. He was storming around the house, ranting at me. If you, I don't know if you ever had someone preach a great sermon, right? When someone preaches a great sermon, it stirs your heart. It's even more impacting when it's your own grandfather and it's just you and him and you're sitting in his house and you're 12 years old and he's preaching. He was preaching this passage. And his whole approach to life, he would wake up every morning. At 30 years old, he was diagnosed with um, ulcers. They said, oh, you know, you'll never live to 40. He had cancer on three or four different occasions. He started having skin cancer treatment at 28. Every nine months, they would cut some other part of his face off. It was quite an interesting looking old man by the end. He used to spill a lot of food. He never used to care because so much of his lip had gone. He still looked good because he always, he always dressed well. 
He used to wake up every morning as long as he said, as long as I'm alive, when I wake up every morning, I know, God, you've recreated me for some good work and I'm just going to walk in that. He never worried about his issues. He never worried about his sin. He never worried about the many, many mistakes that he made in his life. Even as a Christian, he woke up every morning and said, I'm going to walk in the purpose of God. I'm going to walk in the good works of God. Oh, what about an army of people on campus just walking in the good work of God? Just understanding the meaning in their ordinary life because this extraordinary God is painting in them a picture of grace that as they walk on the campus, they carry this fragrance of the gospel. And what about a whole bunch of school students, high school students, intermediate school students who are equipped with a knowledge of God's purpose? That it's grace isn't just to save them and set them free in heaven, but it's grace is to position them in their life now with authority and his power as 16 year olds, extending the kingdom, extending grace. What about early childhood teachers who carry the grace of God and can read little kids' stories and communicate the love of God. Come on, what about supermarket shelves perfectly stocked? What about school teachers that change the world? Come on, that's, that's who we are. That's the grace of God, the ordinary work of God, the extraordinary work of God in ordinary people. When you close your eyes for just a second, perhaps you're here and you've never made a decision to acknowledge Jesus. I don't know everybody here. I'd love to pray for you. If, if you've never taken the chance, like a chance like this one, to ask God to forgive you of your sin, well, you can take this chance. This is a great opportunity. If you're far away from God, could I pray with you? How we do it in church is that if you want to respond to God for the first time at the end of the service, we create this moment where we ask people to close their eyes and bow their heads. That's so you can have some privacy. And then if you need to respond, all you need to do is lift your hand in a minute and I'll lead you in a prayer. And the prayer is along these lines where we thank God for the sacrifice that Jesus made so that we could be set free. We acknowledge our sin and we also choose to follow God. We, make, we, set, we, we, we choose to follow God from today and we give Him the rest of our life. It's a decision we make in our heart. And then the reason we pray together is so that you can voice out of your mouth that decision to acknowledge God, ask Him to forgive your sin, and choose to follow Him. If you're here and you've never made this decision before, you've never taken this opportunity, why don't you do that right now? Everyone's got their heads bowed, their eyes closed. Just look up, catch my eye, give me a wave and say, yeah, I want to do that tonight. I want to acknowledge Jesus as my Savior. When I see your hand, you can pop it back down. And then when people have had a chance to respond, uh, then we'll all pray together. There's no pressure. We, we, we create this opportunity as often as possible in church, just in case there's people here who need to respond. If that's you, could I urge you to do that? Respond to God. Respond to His love that's reaching out to you. Amen. Amen. Come on, we're going to pray one more time before we are going to finish with the song of praise in just a second. But I'd love to pray. Is that all right? I really would love to pray. And um, yeah, we all here we all we live in our life, right? We live in all of our insecurities, and we live with all of our failures. We live with all of our brokenness. But I want to pray, and I really I want you to respond. If you know if this is your you yeah, stand in just a second. Apart from all of the things that confuse you and frustrate you, if you know in your heart you can feel the Holy Spirit just calling you to live in a new level of purpose. Maybe you always remember that you're a masterpiece. Maybe you'll forget it. But either way that you live with a sense of purpose, 
that actually God's called you to where you're at to right now. If that's you, why don't you jump to your feet? I want to pray. Uh, if you know that hey, God's calling you to live with a new sense of purpose. Actually, why don't you come down the front? Join me down the front. There's probably enough space for us to all come down the front if we have to. Come down the front. Just why don't you line up? We're just going to let Wakash play the keyboard. Make one line. And why don't you lift your hands? I really believe the Holy Spirit wants to impart grace in a new way. Make